Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So, if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes that women will be saved through childbearing. What exactly does that mean? Professor Sandra Glan joined us on the podcast to talk about her research into Artemis of the Ephesians and the profound impact it had on her understanding of Paul's often misunderstood words. Sandra's book, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament, helped me to make sense of this complicated text by understanding the historical and cultural context Paul wrote in. Sandra and I talk about her own story, the work of scholarship and research, and the exciting developments in archaeology that impact biblical understanding these days. Sandra's book is a surprising mix of stories and technical detail, and I learned so much from her. And InterVarsity Press is offering a discount on Nobody's Mother to listeners of this podcast. You can find a link to the book and the discount code in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, I've included an excerpt from our conversation where Sandra gives us some practical tips on explaining context if you are in a heated discussion about a biblical text. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Sandra Glan is Professor of Media Arts and Worship at Dallas Theological Seminary. She holds a Master of Theology degree from DTS and a PhD in the Humanities Aesthetic Studies from the University of Texas at Dallas. Sandra Glan is a journalist and the author or co-author of more than 20 books. She is a frequent podcast guest and retreat speaker whose areas of expertise include Artemis, Ephesus, Bible books and backgrounds, women's history and issues, the history of ideas about gender, sexuality, and ethics, and writing for publication. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here. Well, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I, I am so excited to talk about your book, but first I would love to spend a few minutes hearing about your life as a professor. Our listeners are mostly women centered with, or, you know, connected with academic life in one way or another. So they're my people. Interested. Oh, good, good. Yeah. So I'm interested to talk about that. And you write so, um, so beautifully about some of your journey in your introduction, but I know that not all of our readers have uh, known about your book yet. So can you tell us a little bit about your path into academia and my teaching? Path. I did not intend to be a professor. In fact, the, the deep irony, which I'm sure make God, makes God laugh, is that I didn't even believe women should go to seminary. So uh, amazing. <laughs> and yes, I was such a conservative. I, you know, there was only one brand of evangelical, even it was only one brand of evangelicalism I even knew about uh, in my early days as a Christian. And so I am the fourth of five children. I had a fabulous mother who, if you've seen Sound of Music, whether the you know, Julie Andrews version or the Carrie Underwood version, you know, that was my mom. She was wow. fun and interesting. And we learned how to make daisy chains and take hikes and learn about butterflies. And so that's the life I wanted for myself. And, and then as I became a believer in a really traditionalist church, that was the vision of not just something that's good, which it is good, but the ideal and really the only path for a woman who wants to follow Christ. And so I married my high school sweetheart. No regrets about that. He's just a great guy. And as uh, as I say in the introduction, he had uh, broader views about what I could do than I had for myself, mm -hmm. which really served us well because we hit the brick wall of infertility and pregnancy loss. And that spanned a decade. And it was a spiritual crisis yeah. for me. 
uh, more than anything else that really focused on a woman will be saved through childbearing. All that to say, I went to seminary as a freelance writer because in the days before the internet, I was at home alone and it's lonely. And I thought it would be uh, the seminary I was near had a media program. Uh, I had been writing in the corporate world and wanted to do more Christian writing. Uh, and so no aspirations whatsoever to get a degree. I was just getting out of the house once a week and, you know, getting some formal training. And uh, I became the teaching assistant for one of the writing profs because I, I had a writing portfolio and that turned into several years. And uh, so I just started taking one class at a time. Uh, as professional development. And pretty soon I, you know, I had a chunk out of my master's degree <laughs> behind me, but every time I had a class that I had a personal assignment that might say, do a deep dive into a verse or a passage or a history of something I was always choosing. What is the Bible saying about women and what we're made for and motherhood? How much of what I've picked up is cultural? How much of it mm. is subcultural? How much of it is Christian subculture? And then I did some international missions and noticed you can't tell women that they can't leave the hut and that their jobs to be in all inside all day. Right. It, you know, the godly <laughs> women are going to the Agora and selling their apples and supplementing their husband's income because the kids have to eat. And so all of that led to eventually I had a degree. Um, and the school where I was teaching at that point said, consider going on for your doctorate. We are getting more and more women students. We need more female professors. Uh, so I pursued wow. uh, more further academics, but I was already teaching based on my portfolio. You know, sometimes you can teach in higher ed if you don't have a PhD, if you have, the, if you're credentialed in the area. And I happen to be teaching writers and media people, mm -hmm. which uh, forgive me, but I worked with Barney and friends and some <laughs> <laughs> they were an early client. People either love me or hate me for that. Uh, but anyway, moment, yeah. <laughs> it was a moment. Yeah. I have to say, I kept my daughter away from the Barney songs as long as possible because I was already pretty tired of them. I'm sure you as were. An adult without, without the child introducing them into the home. Anyway, I came the hard way. I came the back way. It was completely unintended. I wanted to be a mom and God had seminary uh, mentoring for me. And today I love, and I'm thriving in that, but as you can imagine, it was, it was a long, hard process of a paradigm shift of both what does God have for me? And also what does God have for other people? What does the text say? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, can you think, um, you know, as you reflect, are there any particular gifts that have come from your life in seminary in teaching and, you know, some of the challenge, I think the challenge is particularly, for women, sometimes, um, you know, you can encounter roadblocks, but it sounds like you've had quite a bit of encouragement. I have, but there have certainly been roadblocks or lots of people who think women don't belong in seminary. And as I said, I was among them in the early days. Right. Um, but I, here's one big thing that helps me overcome, whether it's policies that, you know, make me cringe or whether it's a particularly difficult staff meeting, or I feel like we're off task. I mean, we all have that, right? I think the thing that really centers me on that is walking out and in my head, literally reciting the names of students. Hmm. I can put up with a lot of junk. I can put up with a lot of policy issues of extra requirements of last minute dumps of work I wasn't expecting. If I can say, yeah, but I get to mentor X person, Y person, Z person. The beautiful thing about the academy is other people vet these people and they come to you ready to be taught. I don't have to go find somebody to mentor. Right. We get good people uh, that are ready to be mentored and in a group of good people. Uh, so the students are what makes it possible to put up with all the things you that all the other things that go with the academic life. Yeah. That may not yeah. be that fun. That's, that's a really great perspective. So for, for women, you know, there may be some women who are listening, who are just starting their, their career in study or in teaching. Would you have any advice to give to them? My advice is if you are in long-term education to savor the education, hmm. don't have the mentality of as soon as I get out of here, I can do my real life. You are in real life and how the habits that you develop 
as you're a student or the habits you're going to need as a professor, you're going to need the boundaries. You're going to, you're going to need the free time. You're going to need, ha- need to know how to do Sabbath. You can't say, Oh, when I get out, I'll do it, do all that. Uh, if, if you have somebody who's taken their own life, you can't say, eh, I'll, you know, I'm going to skip that and take a break later. Like the demands that come with ministry don't allow you to just rearrange. But if you already have those habits built into your life, uh, then when different kinds of pressures, then deadlines mm-hmm. hit you, you'll, you already have the habits. I loved my education and uh, I see some of my students in a hurry to get through so they can get out and do something. And uh, I think the students that thrive better over the long haul uh, and do better in ministry over the long haul are the people who say, I'm already in ministry. My ministry is studying right wow. now. Yeah. Yeah. That is a great, that's a great word. Thanks. Well, let's turn to talk about your new book. It is entitled Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. I really enjoyed reading it. I found that it was a, it was a stretch for me. I'm not, you know, a, a seminarian. Um, so there was a lot of information that felt new, but, and it really surprised me in some ways. And I learned so much. It was really, it was lots of fun. So I'd love to start with the introduction where you recount some of your personal story and you really talk about why you wanted to write this book. I'd love for you to tell listeners about that. Yeah, it's a very non-traditional academic approach. And some of that, I think we're all seeing a return to story, a recognition that Westerners may be undervalued narrative, but it's Mm. uh, Madeline Lengel, Wrinkle in Time, has a book, Walking on Water, which where she tells a story of a relative who was a burn victim. And the only painkiller that helped was Once Upon a Time. And we see the same thing if we're on the treadmill, right? A good story helps us forget we're sweating and miserable. And uh, I I think it's really important to, instead of saying, don't bring your personal life to your theology, you need to be objective. We think we need to do the opposite and say, what is my infertility? What is my, you know, academic long haul? What what does all that bring to the text? And in my case, what it brought, brought to the text was a deep concern for how am I to understand a woman will be saved through childbearing? Uh, what does it mean to be saved in that passage? Certainly, if if I'm looking at Paul in other places, I know he doesn't mean, you know, eternal life, but what does that mean? And I think it, it, it drove my research, but I felt like it was really important uh, for for me to put a face to the story too, because sometimes when we come to the issue of what women can and can't do in those thorny issues in Paul, it's all theoretical and it needs to be much more pastoral. Mm-hmm. What are the implications of my mm-hmm. views on this and how injuring have they maybe been? I'll, I'll tell a, a brief story that that's on the IVP uh, website that when I was on a press junket in the Holy Land, we had um, a wonderful guide, Carl, that we just loved. And he took us to the entrance of Yad Vashem, which was the um, the Holocaust Museum there. And he said, I have to stop here at the, the gate. I can't go in with you or I'll be in the fetal position for a week. These are my people. This is our story. But he told us two really pretty traumatic stories, one of a little boy, one of a little girl, and um, who ended up, true stories, and ended up fleeing their homelands to come and make a new life in Israel. Uh, and he said, and they and they grew up and married and they had a son named Carl. And this is my parents' story. And I think it's important that instead of just hearing about millions of people, you have a personal connection and can think about the one person rather than the millions. And he was absolutely right that it was the one person that actually had much more of emotional effect on us than the overwhelming numbers. And I, I, that story has really stayed with me as an approach to information Mm. to tell the story of the one before you explore something that is going to have ramifications for the millions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and your, your story connects so intimately with this topic. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was really, it was really a a great way to begin. Um, and right, and near in in that introduction, I think you write this book is for the reader who wants to avoid sacrificing a high view of scripture while working to reconcile conflicting narratives about God's view of women, which I just thought was so great. Yeah. This is exactly what we want to do. We want to really honor scripture, but also yeah. 
wrestle with this, this confusing text. And so many approaches that want to push back against sexism, and rightly so, have taken the approach of either throwing Paul under the bus or throwing scripture under the bus yeah. uh, in their desire to elevate women. And that it's not it's not the best way. It's not the I don't think it's the truth. So but and that was me. Uh, I in terms of my conflict, I would read something that seemed to affirm women and I go, oh, but how they got there. No, that that's not how we can go. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I got to the point where. I I don't know where I'm going to end up on this. I have no idea where this is going to take me, but the evidence suggests that Paul had something specific on his mind and I want to try to figure out what that was. And if that does inform that little enigmatic text, a woman will be saved through childbearing. And, and I think it does. Yeah. Well, you, you um, write in one of your chapters, you talk about why take a fresh look. That is the title of yeah. the chapter. Yeah. And you wrote, I'm not saying that Paul needs updating. Paul is not what needs an update. We do considering that the tools used for interpretation have already been updated. So for those of us who aren't in your field, help us to understand what changes have taken place in the study of ancient history and how it impacts our reading of scripture. I would say the most exciting change is when I pick up uh, a Greek English and we're looking specifically at Koine, it's a certain brand of Greek that was uh, Paul was using. Uh, we look at Koine Greek at the time of Paul, we are basing our dictionaries mostly on the papyri, mostly on the handwritten sources. But there are about a half a million sources in stone that give us words from the time of the earliest Christians that have not even been incorporated Hmm. into our lexicons. Maybe if you find an enormous script inscription somewhere, like somebody in the future might find Lincoln's second inaugural speech in the Lincoln Memorial that would be (laughs) part of the average language of, you know, the elite, but is not going to be in your everyday uh, dictionary. We're just beginning to get all that. It's now available online in Greek. And then we're starting to get translated volumes. Just before I uh, turned in my manuscript, I got a two volume set that just has the references to women in the uh, ancient world that are in inscriptions of, of mostly Greek, but some, uh, some Latin uh, and all the translation work that I had to do 10 or more years ago was done for me. So then it was just a matter of checking my translations and also finding some stuff I hadn't seen whether it was uncovered later or whether I had not quite translated it correctly. Maybe the word wasn't in my dictionary because they hadn't incorporated for whatever reason. That's the most exciting development is the accessibility of all these inscriptions. And in the kindness and sovereignty of God, he made the Romans love to put things in stone. And that gives us a context for so many words And if you think about just walking through a cemetery today, you'll see what kind of a wife someone was, you know, whether she's a beloved mother or whether like you just get hints Mm -hmm. of of how tender sometimes the language is. And we see something very similar in the Roman writing. So that's a biggie. But another thing that has happened is sort of um, rhetorical analysis where in the past, if someone insulted uh, someone else's mother because she talks too much, we would say, oh, women were talkative. Instead of saying, pull the camera back on that. This is a rhetorical strat- strategy of insults, mm-hmm. ins- you know, and maybe not coming to the same conclusion. The way that I, I think of one example, uh, Roman law says that if uh, a woman has a certain number of children, then she's released from being under male authority. And now we read the lot between the lines and go, that must mean women were motivated to be released from male authority. Because sometimes as the story gets told, women are just happy with their lot until right. modern, you know, Western feminism come along, comes along and wrecks everything. And so now our, our analysis of even literature says, okay, not necessarily so. So there are, there are five or six different things that I list like that, that have changed the way we understand uh, how we process uh, semiotics is the study of signs and symbols that say if there are a whole bunch of candles on a cake in America, we know it's somebody's birthday. But if you take that to parts of the world where that tradition doesn't exist, it means nothing. 
And we run into that in the New Testament, whether it's uh, a reference to women with shaved heads mm-hmm. in Corinth, like the, we're, we've been doing guesswork trying to figure out what were the signs that that meant. And we have more data to explain that now. Well, you, you go into a lot of these things in the book. And one of the things that you really, I mean, really the, the main focus of your book is on the figure of Artemis and the implications of the culture that surrounds her. So you take us really on a deep dive into history and literature and archaeology and mythology, anything that can really lend more information and context about Artemis. And I learned a lot and really appreciated growing in my understanding of the place Artemis had in Greek culture. So can you tell the listeners just a little bit about the story of Artemis and the place she held for women at that time? Yes. And I think I'll begin with why in the world did I choose her mm-hmm. and why did I think she was relevant? Relevant, And actually the clues for that came right out of the New Testament. It wasn't actually the backgrounds. The New Testament pointed me to the backgrounds and not the other way around. Because in the book of Acts, you have uh, two really pretty long narratives about something happening in the city of Ephesus. And one is the magic workers are coming to Christ and they're burning their books that have to do with magic. And the next is the silver workers are upset that the gospel ministry is really cutting into their souvenir trade and silver trinkets <laughs> of Artemis. And you know, 10 years ago, when I was looking at that for my dissertation, I didn't connect the two stories. Now that we have more research, uh, one inscription has incantations to Artemis, and we we are seeing a connection to Artemis and magic. So maybe what we thought was two different uh, I, kinds of religious ideas are one. So who is Artemis? They're chanting. They go into the to the theater and chant for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I would never say great is Jesus of Dallas. <laughs> uh, why, <laughs> why do you have a local qualification on that? Mm-hmm. And you do have generic Artemis who's, uh, you, you know, Wonder Woman is based on, on her, the, the short skirted uh, arrow wielding virgin. Um, and so there's that iteration of her who's sort of the generic one. And then the one in Ephesus, who's the same backstory in the same way that Barbie can be both a president and an architect. You have Artemis who can be the short skirted, you know, hunter. But in Ephesus, she she has these bulbous appendages all over her front. She shapes sort of like a bee. She has a bee on the side of her leg. Well, the bee is the emblem of Ephesus as a city. So she's sort of the goddess of the city. So in mythology, briefly, and there are lots of different versions. I, I usually go with Homer's. Uh, Zeus is the big daddy god, and he is married to uh, Hera and Hera is very, very powerful, but Zeus cheats, he's a cheater and he impregnates Leto. Leto is pregnant now with twins. And because everybody's afraid of Leto, nobody wants to be friendly. I'm sorry, afraid of Hera. They don't want to be friendly to Leto when she goes to find a place to give birth. But finally, she finds a place near Ephesus where she is guarded. She gives, Artemis is born first. Firstborn, preeminent prototh, I think is important language there. Artemis is first. And she watches as her mother arrives for nine days, giving birth to Apollo, her twin, and goes to daddy Zeus and says, I don't want anything to do with sex. I don't want anything to do with babies, you know, in terms of having them make me immune to Aphrodite's arrows. And her wish is granted. And so what you see in Artemis of Ephesus, especially in that city, in the same way that Labor, Lady Liberty in New York Harbor uh, is more connected with immigration than the lady, same Lady Liberty in Paris, mm-hmm. in Ephesus, uh, Artemis is connected with the childbirth event in the way she isn't in other cities. And not just childbirth, but specifically midwifery. Mm-hmm. She's the doula of the place. And so our best understanding is that when a woman would go to give birth, which is the number one cause of death for women at the time, they're going to Artemis's temple and they're saying, either deliver me safely or kill me quickly with your euthanizing arrows, but don't leave me writhing to death for days before I expire. So the number one thing that a Christian woman has given up in coming to Jesus is this comfort that she has, that she is going to, uh, she has a God who can watch over her. And I think Paul is using similar language to say, Jesus is better. 
Yeah, you just you tie it all together um, really beautifully. At the end, you you create this fictional character, Theodora, um, from Ephesus, and that she's she's kind of just a, a prototype of a woman. And you tell her story of like, you know, I have that that she has um, been depending on Artemis for that kind of comfort and safety. And now having become a Christian and believing in Jesus, she needs to turn away from that. And so what can she do? It really brought it all together. I think Paul is a friend of women, mm-hmm. but because we don't understand his context and he's writing to Timothy, last thing on his mind, he's run out of town, kind of. He's planning to leave Ephesus early you know, already, but after the brouhaha with the silver workers, he departs quickly and he writes back to Timothy and says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so again, what was the last thing on Paul's mind when he left Ephesus was great as Artemis of the Ephesians. He's like, yeah, no, don't think so. Well, one of the things that I found um, surprising and fascinating was the way all of this research really culminated in the explanation of just a couple of verses, which, yeah. you know, are, are really important verses the way our culture yeah. has, has taken them. Um, but I'm interested to hear your own thoughts about how much work you have to do to shed insight on a small text. And I think, you know, specialized scholarly efforts like this take so much energy. I think a lot of our listeners experience this in their own fields too. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I love I love how the wisdom books talk about how uh, knowing God's word is like panning for gold. And sometimes we just think it should come easily, that it should be easily understood by everyone. And anybody, I'm from the West Coast, anybody who's ever panned for gold knows it hurts your back. You work for days to get some dust. <laughs> it's just, it's really hard work. And it should be hard work in a sense that on the one hand, yes, it's accessible. And we have the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, why should we not expect uh, I can't even read Walden from Emerson without Cliff's notes to explain some. And you know he's with he's within two centuries of me. Sure. I should not expect to to go to a Hittite influence culture from two thousand years ago and have it all make perfect sense to me without some help. That said, I have to say though that even though I was solving for X, what what does it mean to be saved through childbearing? It was all fascinating. I mean, it's not like I was I was bored because I'd spent 20 years trying to solve this thing. It led me through Greek mythology and noticing how many references to mythology show up in the New Testament. Even the name Artemis with an, ending with an M-E-S is a male name that hmm. somebody named their child follower of Artemis, who's a guy, and then he comes to Jesus because he's one of Paul's co-workers. Just that to me is an interesting story that yeah. I would love to write a novel you know, about his journey from Artemis worshiping parents. So I'm learning mythology. I'm learning about how to read inscriptions in the same way that the average person, your average listener understands what AM and PM mean after uh, numbers. You know, you know that that's time in the inscriptions. You could, you could have Marcus Aurelius just down to one letter and they would know what that meant. So it takes a little bit of learning to know why did they keep abbreviating and then you realize you know what we we do that too we just don't even notice it so some of that was the puzzle of solving Uh, some of it was interesting to see the name Theodora is actually showing up pretty often that's why I chose it for my Mm -hmm. fictional person um so there you're learning things about names you're learning uh even even some of the curses were funny you know cursed be anybody who removes this and if you pee here you're gonna get a really serious (laughs) really somebody took the time to put that in stone i mean just so some of it's amusing um it's just interesting to study an honor shame culture because we're so much in an authority culture um and And so then I would read other parts of scripture differently. I would notice in Ephesians 6, where Paul talks about the fiery arrows of the devil and going, oh, and he's writing that to people in a city where, you know, arrows are a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, Just seeing him cast shade. So I I noticed things about Paul and how he ministered and how he borrowed phrases that I wouldn't have noticed before. Um, I I noticed lots of titles he uses. that that are given to Artemis that are Jesus titles. And he's constantly through using her title saying Jesus is better. 
<laughs> well, and I mean, it sounds just as you're describing this, it brings me back to your advice for young scholars and new teachers mm-hmm. that, you know, you enjoy you have <laughs> clearly enjoyed the whole yeah. process, which is great. And it comes yeah. through in our conversation and in your writing. It's really wonderful. Thank you. And then there's actually going to Ephesus, which is a, a oh, supreme blast. Um, wow. You know, seeing the Amazon women carved in stone and knowing that they are telling the city's story, you know, the evidence is right there. We we tend to think Amazons aren't real, but apparently the Smithsonian Magazine and National Geographic think they are. So wow. that's good enough for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to to move our conversation a little bit toward women in academic and professional contexts and how they can use this book. So I wanted to start off with a really particular question about your writing that I found interesting. You added a few trigger warnings in your book, mostly around some of the more violent mythological stories. And I think our listeners would be interested to hear about your process around that decision. How did you... That's a, that's a really great question. So one of the challenges with Zeus is that he violates women and knowing the stats of how many of my friends have in, you know, are survivors of sexual violence. um, I wanted them to at least know it was coming. They still read it. It just, they're not, they aren't jarred by it. Um, and so anything, and there, there are things that I missed that my good editors also suggested, Hey, this might be a good thing to flag too, uh, which is the, the beauty of having an editor. I'm starting to notice, interestingly enough, that people are putting trigger warnings before infertility stories. And it, it has never occurred to me Interesting. Uh, as much as I went through that, that I would need that. And yet there's a part of me goes, Oh yeah, but I would have appreciated knowing it was coming. Uh, in the same way that if I had a friend who was getting ready to make a pregnancy announcement, she would often come find me and say, if you don't want to be in the room for it, uh, you know, feel free to scoot out. I appreciated that so much. Often I would stay, but I didn't get broadsided by it. Uh, when people turn to the infertile person to see how they're reacting, like I already knew to have my poker face on instead of the one that was like, uh, you know, with my mouth open. So uh, I think that it's, it just flags the reader that I know you're a reader. I know you're a person and I acknowledge that uh, this might be a difficult text. So um, that, that was the rationale behind some of that. We were also talking about, we've been talking this entire time about the ways that story can really impact um, communicating facts and that that's really become um, an important part of your teaching. So are there, are there ways this practice can inform a professor's teaching? How do you do that? Yeah. You know, how, what, how could someone get started thinking about Great that? Great question. Let me just start the, my answer to that by saying I have a really good friend, uh, Dr. Eva Bleeker, who is over the chaplaincy program at Denver Seminary. And one of her several master's degrees is from Columbia University in the city of New York in narrative medicine. So she's been a hospital chaplain. And you're like, what is narrative medicine? Well, if you think about how you go to the doctor, typically you fill out, did your parents have diabetes? Has there been cancer? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. But then when the physician comes in, the question is a narrative question. When did you start feeling your pain? Or when did you start feeling depressed? Was there something that exactly, when did you fall? Tell me about how that happened. And so narrative medicine is focusing on, we will do a better job if we learn how to listen to story, because often the patient can tell you embedded in the story, what the source of the problem is. And so we're seeing it in medicine. I want to bring more of that to theology. Uh, Some of that is, is also acknowledging or noticing that the Old Testament is so much more narrative than the New Testament, and that it's a very Western way to do Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, which, you know, some of us call the General Electric Power Company, where we tend to, (laughs) I tend to focus on line upon line, precept upon precept is often how that's taught. And that's a pretty Western way of teaching. But if you're teaching in other parts of the world, a lot of times, it'll be story, even when I take students, I take students to Italy to study medieval art and spirituality, and I'm fascinated by how pre-literate Christians are drawing much more on the narratives than they are on the four I just mentioned. And so I will see 
Melchizedek and Abel over an altar because they both brought a perfect sacrifice. Wow. But in America, I have not heard a sermon on those two juxtaposed. Right. Uh, so it's pretty technical. I mean, it's pretty complex theology, just drawing on different mer- narrative parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the backdrop of, you know, all these factors that influenced me on how important it was, whether it was Carl at Yad Vashem, whether it was Eva talking about narrative medicine, whether it was my own story that brought to the text questions that I wouldn't have had if I just approached it, trying to be objective and looking at only the grammar. So what are some ways to do that? I think um, starting a writing class with, do you ever dream about writing a book and what's the subject? Like Mm -hmm. sourcing, yeah, you're going to get ready to write. But one of the biggest questions in writing is where do I begin? What am I going to write about? And often people don't realize you've actually already been, been thinking about this question or asking a question of what papers do you have stashed in a file somewhere that you've already done the research on that you can tag some stories onto and teach the research in an interesting way? What are the already existing stories that you have that intersect with the research mm-hmm. that you've done? Um, one of the ways early on for me that it exhibited itself was I paired up with a medical doctor and we were writing bioethics through the process of story. And it came out of our first two books were on infertility and contraception, nonfiction, but we saw stem cell research on the horizon and said, there is no way we are going to write a nonfiction book on that that anybody other than his mother and my father were going to read, right? Um, Who sits on an airplane reading, you know, stem cell research? Well, some people do, but not your average person. But we thought if we give some of our characters terrible diseases that are treated through stem cell research, some of it ethical, some of it not, we can explore the ethics of what Mm. makes that good and what makes that bad through the lives of characters people think about. Uh, And so so that's a medicine way of of doing it. Uh, Yeah, there are lots of ways to approach a topic through the vehicle of story. And I think I met a woman who was coming to a Bible study and I began Bible teaching by giving the whole story of scripture and then saying how the book of Galatians fits in or how the book of Revelation fits into the big story. And a woman came up to me afterward and said, I've been in a good Bible teaching church all my life. And today's the first day I realized the Bible was not a book of quotes. Wow. Because every sermon she'd ever heard was from a small section or a phrase she thought that that was, or she'd read a devotional again, little tiny sections, um, didn't realize it's a big story. So Mm -hmm. there is a push that we're seeing. I, uh, Kat Armstrong is somebody who's doing a storyline Bible study that looks, you know, includes the story of scripture. My own seminary is doing a course on the story of scripture to make sure we give the big picture so that people understand where we are in the story and where a narrative or a teaching or an apocalypse might fit into the grand story that that God is telling. That's great. That's super fascinating. Who would have thought? Yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, I wanted to ask one, one other question. Um, So we, we often get questions from women are in our community who don't have children either by choice or circumstance, and they're wrestling with the pressures that accompany this this experience. So your, your story and research is really a clear reflection of this. I, you know, I hear that you've had a lot of experience with this. So what encouragement might you offer to a woman like this, someone who's listening to this conversation? Great question. So my very first day of seminary, go back with me to the time when I'm questioning whether a woman should even go to seminary. And in stereo, I have my pastor's wife in one ear saying, you're helping me with Bible study. You need some training. And my (laughs) husband going, I think he'd really thrive, you know, getting it in stereo, but having my doubts and I'm on my way to my first class. And again, it's a writing class, not even a theology class. And I literally dropped to my knees in front of my couch and said, which I don't normally do. And (laughs) on my way out the door and I said, God, if I am wrongly walking into a man's world, and, you know, being entering a space where I should not be, please stop me. And amazingly, what came to mind was a story I had not thought about in months. And it was the line from Mary and Martha, Mary has chosen what is better. Hmm. And I realized that Jesus was the first rabbi to have a female student. Hmm. And I had no idea where it was going to lead. Uh, oh, the irony that it's led to being a professor. But but at the time, I had no idea. I just knew, okay, for today, I'm supposed to be in class. Okay, here I go. 
Um, and I think that one of the things that I had to work through uh, in deciding that this, that I was hearing God correctly, that I needed to be in this space was I had to work through the same thing that led me to look at a woman will be saved through childbearing. And that's this idea that God's ideal for every woman is to be married and have children. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely not, I now know from history, was definitely not a pre-Reformation idea. Mm -hmm. If anything, before the Reformation, it was the exact opposite. And you were kind of looked down on as both a man or a woman. If you were the life of the home, you didn't get to have the life of the mind. You didn't get to be literate. You right. weren't translating or you know illuminating manuscripts. You, there was no such thing as contraception. You were having enormous families. Babies are dying. And it's all you could do to just keep you know, diapers clean. And so we go the opposite extreme with the F Reformation and we empty the monasteries and we force marriages of nuns and priests. And, um, and ever since then, there's really been an overemphasis on the family in the church. Not that the family is not important, but right. the messaging gets through that this is the ideal and this is mature Christianity, that you're waiting to have a husband. And, and until that happens, you're kind of on hold. Right. And Mary and Martha would suggest otherwise. We don't ever see them uh, have marrying, having children. And so uh, I think Romans 16 is also a wonderful place to look that Paul was talking about Bibi the deacon and Tryphena and Tryphosa are his partners. He does mention that Rufus's mother is a mother to him. So there's certainly a place for both biological mothering and spiritual mothering in that paradigm. Uh, you look at Aquila and Priscilla, no mention is made. So she is married, but there's no mention made of her children. One of the things I'm finding from my middle-aged women students is that for those who are coming after doing a fabulous job raising their children and devoting their lives to that they're in crisis because they didn't have a model for themselves beyond that that hmm. so they've lived out what they perceived as the ideal and you know they come at 45 or 50 and think if i live to 85 i got a lot of good years ahead when i could be doing more than <laughs> vacuuming and my need my gifts and the world's needs there has to be a better intersection than vacuuming um, and so all that to say in God's pattern book, there is a broad range of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be called to love God with all your mind is not given to men only. It's those commands to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength are not gendered as my friend Kat Armstrong says, they're all four of those are for men and all four of those are for women. And so how do I love God with my mind? For some of us, it's going to be in the academy. Yeah. Kids are not kids either. We have both, both models. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is great. That's very encouraging, I think. So, um, well, as we wrap up, I want to ask how readers can follow you and your work. What's on the horizon for you? Those are two different questions. All right. Okay. And it's hard for me. I, you know, squirrel. I'm kind of... <laughs> A one at a time. So, okay, one at a time. How they can find me is easy. Most easy place to find me is sandraglon.com. The only challenge is spelling my name right. So Sandra is S-A-N-D-R-A, but Glon is G-L-A-H-N, not Galahan, Glon. Uh, sandraglon.com. And there is a blog embedded in there that you can find that tells where you can find me on podcasts like this one, where you can find... Uh, I blog for Bible.org twice a month on their women's leadership sites called Engage. Lots of resources, actually, that some of your readers might have an interest in. Yeah. Um, and so I'm talking to women leaders on that site um, so they can find me there. But probably the easiest place is to start with, with my website and go from there. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sandra Glon. Uh, and you can follow me on Facebook at my author page uh, is okay. actually Aspire and the number two, Aspire 2 um came comes out of the verse aspire to the quiet life hmm. and then your second question see help me yes what was your second, second question? question what what is on What's the next? horizon for thank you? you yeah what is on the horizon okay so i just got off sabbatical praise god it was the first sabbatical i've had since 1999 so i was in wow. desperate need of a sabbatical yeah. and uh in the kindness of god about a month before i had to turn in my sabbatical plan uh, I was granted $50,000 to do a partnership with Lynn Kohick down at uh, Christian Houston Christian and George Kalansis at Wheaton College. The three of us uh, are creating the Visual Museum at visualmuseum.gallery, and it's a visual museum 
of women in Christianity. And one of the things that we notice uh, coming out of my Italy trips was there is a huge amount of women depicted in the art of the church that doesn't show up in the descriptions of them in church councils. So if you were to take your church's town hall meetings, you might think your church is in conflict all the time. But if you look at the bulletin, you would see that people are getting casseroles and meals and church dinners and hospital visits and being prayed for and loved on. And that's a much better reflection of the everyday life of the church. And the same is true of what we are finding of women in the mosaics and the frescoes and the statuary and the coins. And so the Visual Museum looks at particularly early in Byzantine women uh, in the Christian story, and we're seeing what they are doing beyond motherhood. One thing that I found particularly interesting this summer was I also teach a course in the UK on the, uh, the inklings and some of the authors using biblical themes. And I was standing in a Canterbury church and I'm looking up at a stained glass window and there are four women and the rector comes over and says, yeah, uh, you know, these are four women that he starts explaining. One of my students, her jaw drops on the floor and says, I've never seen a woman in a stained glass window. And he said, well, there are actually quite a few of them in our country. But the thing we found most intriguing was one of them was holding a shepherd's staff, hmm. the crozier. And then we started noticing everywhere we went, we are noticing a statue of women. And these are women from the seventh century. These are not women from modern feminism. And so clearly the, the metaphor of a shepherd is not something new in mm. Christendom. And, and that was a relevant thing to current discussions where you just show a photo and no explanation needed really. So sometimes the art speaks to some of the issues that we're questioning in a contemporary church. So what next for me? Uh, we are putting the visual, we just got our nonprofit status this week. Uh, we have, we held a conference at Wheaton and filmed it so it can be on the site that is addressing some of the art and what it's communicating. Uh, and so I imagine in my side gig, I'll be, uh, I'll be always doing more writing. That's my first love, but it'll probably relate in many ways to informing people who are Praxides and Pudenziana and Catherine of Siena and Catherine of Alexandria and you know, all, women we've never heard of or women whose names we might have heard of, but we don't really know their stories and, you know, how relevant they are to the church. What's going on with Teresa of Avila? Who is Julian of Norwich? Uh, telling their stories and, and then sending people to the works that they've written. Super. Well, it sounds all so fun. And I got a peek at that at that website um, and saw some of some of your work. So that looks really exciting. It's in beta. And we're looking for photographers and writers. So if okay. you happen, if somebody of your listeners, some of your listeners travel, we'd love, especially like Ethiopia and Turkey. If you see a woman with a crozier, take a picture. If you see okay. a woman holding a communion cup, uh, we see men and women holding communion uh, elements in the early church. Who knew? We'd love to have it. You can tell just from this interview what a terrific teacher Sandra is. I've learned so much from reading her book, and I find her love of the learning process to be really inspiring. I hope you pick up a copy of Nobody's Mother. Remember that you can find a link to the book and an IVP discount code in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Sandra gives us some practical tips on explaining context if you're in a heated discussion about a biblical text. The Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, so if you enjoyed this podcast you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Sandra. 
I think the first thing is, is this conversation worth having? Uh, are we talking about a pearls before a swine kind of person here? Or are we talking about somebody who's teachable? Mm -hmm. um, I think also it's really important because there have been people with a low view of scripture who have, who have put culture over text, over scriptural text. I think it's important to begin with that reference to the book of Acts and say, we didn't just pull this out of a hat and go, let's pick a goddess and say she was on Paul's mind, but actually look to our to the New Testament to give us hints as to what the context would have been. I think another approach that I found particularly helpful is the Socratic one, which is asking questions because there is so much incongruence in how people try to process a woman will be saved through childbearing. Instead of saying, here's, here's new evidence, here's what I think, is to say, what have you heard? Hmm. Uh, what are the conflicts that raises for you? And here are some of them. If you've heard that it's a reference to Jesus, then why is it applied to women only? Or if it's a reference to being saved through Jesus's birth, why is it that so much of the Bible seems to stress the, his death and resurrection and the gospel itself, as Paul spells it out, doesn't mention the birth of Jesus? Certainly the incarnation is essential, but it just seems an unusual reference there. You know, questions like that, or even if you're getting in the section of, uh, it looks like Paul is limiting wives and not husbands or, or women, not men, um, but their comfort is going to be their saved through childbearing. Well, why would that refer to Jesus for women if that's true for men? So those are those are legit yeah. questions. That, so raising the questions, helping the listener feel a sense of dissonance mm -hmm. in those questions has definitely been a better approach. But also, I will say this, I think it's really important to stress that my goal here was not asking the question, can women teach? Right. Uh, my goal here was, can women be, what does it mean to be saved through childbearing? And I think once you establish whether there was something culturally going on in that context, in that verse, then it can inform some of the other stuff in the, in the section of the pericope, as we want to call it, or the section of scripture. Um, but Instead of really focusing on what women can and can't do, I think it's really important to go to Genesis and say, are we doing a good job of partnering men and women, hmm. regardless of where we fall on this spectrum? If you're if you have a missions committee at your church, is it all men or all women? Not good. We're we're supposed to image God together. Even a women's Bible study, I want to say, bring the brothers in for stuff. And if you have a men's Bible study, let the women be commenting on if they're stereotyping that, speak to that. Where could we be partnering? Uh, if your church has an altar call, are there men and women available? If you have people greeting at the door, are there men and women available? Where are we uh, needing to image God in areas that aren't nearly so volatile as the question of teaching yeah. that can still really make progress in partnering and partnering in the gospel where we need we need some improvement in places?